We'll take our scriptures open to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians 5. All right. Galatians 5. Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Named, of course, after that uh, famous charter of rights and freedoms in England in the 1200s. The gospel is a message of freedom. The gospel is a message of liberty. Freedom from the law. Freedom from the curse of the law that comes upon us for being sinners. Freedom, deliverance from the law as a covenant of works that binds us and condemns us for anything less than perfect, exact, entire obedience to God. Now I want to ask you, how is it that God could offer, could provide such freedom to lawbreakers? Did he do it by somehow lowering his expectations for us? By no means. As if God could deny his just nature. No, God has made us free by providing that perfect righteousness himself. Amen? In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the kind of life we should have lived and died the death we should have died as a judgment of God upon sin. It's Jesus Christ and Christ alone that is our righteousness that gives us freedom and liberty from the condemnation that we justly deserve. Because Jesus Christ has died, because He lived a life of perfect righteousness all on behalf of His people, on behalf of all who would call upon Him in faith. Because of that, we're set free. We're at liberty. We're at peace with God, not under the condemnation of God any longer. This is the gospel. This is the glorious message of liberty that is preached in the good news. And when the gospel of liberty really hits home, it amazes, it astounds people. It it causes them to be filled with gratitude and thankfulness, humility, with love and faith, and it brings a transformation of their lives. But, Satan is always attacking the gospel, the true gospel, with his counterfeits. And Paul has written this letter to combat the counterfeit gospels that were circulating in his day. And as such, we need this letter for us today. For we are just as tempted to fall into false gospels. And Satan, on the one hand, presents a false gospel gospel, quote-unquote, of of legalism. That's really what Paul has been addressing all along throughout this letter. This kind of message that says 
you can be declared to be right with God by your own works, by going through religious rituals, by your pedigree. Somehow, some of these things, if you will, um, if you will be fastidious about them, they will merit um, the declaration of, of, of justification for, for you. If you will just do the right things. And so Paul has been arguing all against, in this letter, against the gospel of legalism. He's pulled the, the Galatian Christians, as it were, out of that ditch and set them right back again on the gospel road. But you know what happens when, when wayward people are pulled out of the ditch and set back in the middle of the road, they tend to go right over onto the other ditch on the other side of the road. And that's, of course, what he's concerned with now because there's not only a false gospel of legalism, but there's a false gospel of license. That is... Christians are viewed to just have a sort of license to live any way they want. Since their salvation is free, it's not on the basis of their works or their deeds or their performance, then what do works matter at all? And the gospel of liberty must always be defended against the false gospels of legalism and license. And he's going to address that here in this text, beginning in verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to what? You were called to freedom, brothers. That's what this whole book's been about so far, amen? All up to this point, you were called to freedom. But Now he moves on to say this, only, here's the qualification, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Short text this morning. It's an important little text that forms a transition in the flow of this letter. In fact, this is sort of the third major section of the letter, I think. In roughly chapters 1 and 2, remember, was very personal. Paul was defending his apostleship and the gospel that he was preaching as being the one true gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, he really begins to be much more theological or doctrinal to argue for a right understanding of the gospel that actually saves the good news of Jesus Christ. Justification is by faith in Christ alone. And now in chapters 5 and 6 roughly, or here in the beginning part of chapter 5 and working on into the rest, he really begins to um, to write uh, with regard to an ethical direction. So he's moved from personal to theological or doctrinal and now to ethical. In other words, he's talking about, okay, here are the ethical implications, the way that this 
should be lived out in practice if you really understand and believe the gospel. And so this is a a really important section beginning with verse 13 because, as I said, it's kind of a hinge. He's linking together everything that he said before. You've been called to freedom, the free gospel that is by justification, by faith alone, not by your works. But he's also saying, now this means that you should not use that freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. This is the beginning of drawing out the practical outworking of the gospel of freedom. Beware lest your liberty turn into license. Beware lest you presume upon grace by giving way to the flesh. That really was where he starts, right? Do not let your freedom be an opportunity, a beachhead, so to speak, for the exercise of the flesh. So I want to stop here and just talk about the flesh for a moment because Paul is going to use this term something like eight times within the next chapter or so. And we'll be uh, unpacking that as we look at the sections that follow. But let me just sort of lay the groundwork here. And uh, by reminding you the way that the Apostle Paul tends to use this term, when we hear of flesh, we usually think of, uh, of a body, and, and the term is used that way sometimes, right, to talk about someone's body, their flesh. But usually in Paul, the word flesh means a lot more than that. And I'll give you maybe a little bit of a, of a taste of kind of the, the foundation for why he uses it this way. In verse 23 of chapter 4, if you go back there, just Look at this illustration. He's talking about, um, in 4.23, the son of the slave woman, making reference to an Old Testament account of the birth of Ishmael to Abraham and Hagar. Hagar was a young slave girl that was in the family. Um, Sarah was Abraham's older um, wife. She was past childbearing years, actually. And God predicted that they would have a a child. And so she said, take my servant, have a child with her. So here's chapter 4, verse 23. The son of the slave, referring to Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, referring to Isaac, was born through promise. So what does it mean to contrast Ishmael born according to the flesh and Isaac born according to the promise? Well, it's, it's something more than just a bodily existence or, or reality that it refers to their bodies because they both had bodies, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. But while Ishmael was born, we might say was born naturally to Abraham impregnating a young woman, Isaac's birth, on the other hand, was supernatural. This was the the supernatural power of God coming on Abraham and, and on Sarah, especially who was past childbearing, according to the promise of God, it, w- it would take place. So flesh often then has the connotation of, of the natural world as it is, um, the natural, our natural self, who we are by nature, uh, 
according to the original creation that's now marred by sin. So our flesh or our original nature involves not only a natural body, but also um, an, uh, and our body, of course, is subject to death, but not only a natural body, but a natural mind or a natural mindset. So our flesh then is not just our physical being, but our natural fallen natural mind or our mindset. Our mindset apart from the grace of God that teaches us how to think. Here's what the Bible says about our natural mind in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The Bible is not very bullish on our natural mind. It's fallen from God and unable to think true thoughts and godly, righteous thoughts um, any longer, apart from mercy, grace. Our flesh involves not only a natural body and a natural mind, but natural desires. Natural desires that were, again, originally oriented towards God in Adam and Eve, but since the fall into sin have been uh, perverted and turned away from God. And here's what the Bible says about our natural desires. In fact, it's right here in verse 17 in chapter 5. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, against the Spirit of God. So we have in our natural selves a body, a mind, desires. All of it has been... um, tainted by sin, such that we are hopelessly separated from God, apart from grace. In fact, here's the Bible's overall verdict on our old nature. Um, It is utterly sinful. In fact, it's described as a kind of slavery, an enslavement. Romans chapter 7 verse 18 says it this way, Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In me by nature, fallen human nature. I'm hopeless in, in the way I think, the desires that I have. All of this is, is under corruption and sin apart from God's grace. So, if this flesh, if this nature is irredeemably corrupt, then what hope is there for any of us? And our only hope, the Bible says, is to be united with Jesus Christ in His death and His resurrection. That is, we die to that old world to that old self, to the old nature, to the old life, and we're born again or we're resurrected into the new world, into the world to come, into new life with a new nature. Here's the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Speaking of 
um, the way that Christians relate to other Christians. 2 Corinthians 5.16, he says, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, as he says, as believers, we don't regard each other according to the natural, our, our old natural selves. We, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. In other words, not that Christ's flesh was sinful, but in his incarnation, Christ was part of this present natural world. And he says, but we regard him thus no longer. Why? Because Christ died, right? He died in this world and He was raised to the world of glory, to the age to come, to all of the blessings that belong to that glorious age. Christ has been raised to that. Now Paul is saying, so Christ has already passed from this broken nature into glorious eternity. Um, and, and as Christians, we regard each other the same way that we have already passed out of this old flesh, this old world, this old age, into, um, into a new. And then he says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away for him. Behold, the new has come. The age that is to come, the new age, the new world, the new self, the new relationship with God, all of that comes as a blessing from God to those who are united to Jesus Christ. We are delivered from the law's condemnation, from the flesh, Final judgment against all things has already been pronounced for those who are in Christ. Uh, that final judgment uh, has been given to them ahead of time in Christ. They are already justified. They're pronounced to be righteous. And one day the new creation will be fully manifest when Christ appears and friends, we're waiting for the day then that we will be completely transformed in every way, our bodies raised to immortality and our souls perfected in holiness, never to go back to sin anymore. Amen? So that's the future, but until then, we're still in the flesh, so to speak, Though we're not any longer in the flesh, we're already with raised together with Christ. Nevertheless, we are still in one sense in the flesh. But we long, we desire to experience more and more of the resurrection life that is in Christ Jesus. And we do so in hope knowing that we've been set free from the condemnation that is coming on the old world. <clears throat> now, what happens when you tell somebody that he's free, that he's not under obligation anymore, that he doesn't have to perform, that 
he is delivered from that um, uh, that uh, th- those expectations in a way. Uh, what happens when you tell someone like that? Uh, when you tell someone that? What happens when you tell someone that God will not charge his sins against him anymore? Well, if he's truly converted, <laughs> he's amazed. He's thankful. He's filled with gratitude and he's transformed by it. But there is a subtle temptation always to treat that freedom as an indulgence, as an opportunity to live out the old sinful flesh, to take that freedom as a license to sin. So we've gone from the struggle with legalism to the struggle with license. And one author put it this way, whereas legalism demands responsibility without freedom, license grants freedom without responsibility. Maybe an example is uh, uh, free love. This uh, phrase that was made popular back in the 60s. Free love, the idea that you can have indiscriminate sexual relations without the necessity of commitment. And of course, it has little to do with true love because sexual perversion always brings a kind of spiritual slavery. But free love meant for them liberty or freedom without any responsibility. And that, in fact, is not liberty at all, but only license. Is freedom from sin's condemnation an excuse for us to go on in sin? God forbid, right? If you, friend, have really died with Jesus Christ, then don't you know that you're going to be living a new life? Isn't that true? If you really are united with Christ, you are raised with Him to a new life. And true believers believe that. They believe that they are truly going to live a new life. They may say, oh God, help my unbelief. But they never stop believing that the same grace of God that has brought them out from under the condemnation of the law is going to bring them out from the power of God's law the influ- the, and, and, and sin, the influence of sin, um, that it will deliver them from the power of sin, just like He's delivered them from the penalty of sin. True believers continue to persevere in their faith that God's grace is sufficient in their trials, in their temptations. Consider the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in you. Friends, consider the greatness of the power of God. You who are tempted to let your liberty in Christ become a license to go on in sin, consider the power of God to deliver you from sin and do not disbelieve, but believe. Do you understand 
that if you give yourself over to sin, then you've never truly been set free. You're still a slave to sin. And think about, think about what you reaped from your sinful actions in the past. Think about the fruit that you got from those things. What, what did those things bring? Nothing but shame and guilt and regret, right? Friend, no true, true Christian says, well, I'll just go on in my sin. A Christian may struggle. He may be tempted. But in the end, he says, I will believe that God's grace is sufficient to deliver me from the power of sin in my life. And he goes on and he pursues a life of godliness, not in order to merit salvation, but a life of godliness that grows out of the salvation that God has freely granted, the spirit that God has put into his heart, and the thankfulness and the gratitude that God has caused to rise up within him. And ironically, you know, real spiritual freedom is actually a kind of service, a kind of slavery even in a way. Now look at the next verse. Do you, do not, he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Serve one another. The opposite of spiritual slavery is not license, it's love. Love for God and love for others. When God brought Israel out of bondage in, in Egypt, when He delivered them from their slavery, He brought them, He says, out into the wilderness to serve Him. <laughs> They're brought from serving the Pharaoh to serving the Lord. This is, this is liberty. This is real Christian liberty. It is not license, but love, service for God. Service not as a slave, but as His Son. And that family loyalty extends to other members of God's family. So that serving God out of love is also serving one another in love. Because these are your brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters of Christ, our elder brother. How can we be brought into a place of freedom and love for God and not love His children? Another irony is that it is those who are set free from the law who truly fulfill it. Look at verse 14. Paul has argued throughout this entire letter, you're free from the law, you're free from the law, and now he says the whole law is fulfilled in this. This one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's urging us to love one another and thus fulfill the law. And the whole law, he says, fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the first table of the law is, could be summed up in what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. You shall love whom? The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
But in the context of the Galatian churches, Paul's primary concern was for their relationship with one another. And they were slandering. We saw that a couple weeks ago. They were slandering him and probably one another, other believers with regard to doctrine. There was probably also some social animosity that was uh, in place there between, especially between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul's reminding them that true freedom is exhibited in love. And love fulfills the law. I find it instructive that Paul expects the Galatians to fulfill the law especially after arguing so intensely that they're free from the law. And to the point where some people almost wonder, is, is Paul contradicting himself here? And then, of course, we know that, uh, that uh, under the inspiration of God, there's no contradiction here, much less uh, even as, as a human author writing this same book, he's not contradicting himself from one chapter to the next. He's offering a clarification here. And so I want you to follow for a moment. We are not under the law, and nevertheless, we do fulfill the law. Spurgeon put it this way, the law, we're not, the Bible says we're not under the law. He, he said like the law being pictured in that sense as a rod held above our heads as if to say, all right, you break the law and this will be your chastisement. We're not under the law, he says. The law is under us like a road under our feet, a path under our feet, showing us where to go, how we should live, how we should walk as Christian people. So freedom from the law then has to be defined. It's not freedom from any kind of morality or any kind of law-keeping, but freedom from law-keeping as the basis for our justification before God. Free from the law as a binding master over us or a husband over us, as the Scripture illustrates, but not freedom from the law as a guide for our life. This is what's sometimes been referred to as the third use of the law. What's the purpose of God's law? Well, in one sense, it's given to us to be like a curb on a a road, a guardrail to keep, uh, to, to, to restrain sin. By threat of punishments, the law restrains sin in a society. But secondly, the law also is like a mirror that reflects our inherent sinfulness. When we look more closely at God's law, what we find is that that we are more sinful than we thought. The law reveals and manifests our sin. But thirdly, the law also is our guide. It shows us what love looks like. Love is the heart of the law. He's just argued that, right? The whole law is fulfilled in this. Love your neighbor. I mean, just think about that. If you love your neighbor, you don't have to teach people don't kill them. Don't steal from them. Don't commit adultery with his spouse. You don't have to teach all of these other things if 
if you have that, this is the heart of the law, but the law shows what love looks like. Because love without law looks like, frankly, anything you want it to look like. And exhibit A is the LGBTQ agenda, which says that love is an unqualified affirmation of all of a person's desires, however ungodly they might be. So love is is defined by the law. Love is not license. Love actually fulfills the law. The English theologian Charles Bridges a couple hundred years ago um, compared it to an old watch. You know the old-timey watches that you had to twist up and they had a spring inside? And uh, there were two parts of the watch. A sp- uh, there are many parts, but uh, referring to these two, a spring that was wound up and a regulator that let that spring unwind little by little, click by click by click. So the seconds ticked by and the minutes and the hours. And he said the law or love is like the spring. That's what gives power to keep the law, to obey the law. That's the heart of it. That's where the energy of law keeping comes from. But the law is like the regulator so that the thing just doesn't come unwound, but it is meted out every second exactly the way it's supposed to be. So here Paul is saying that that teaching Christians that you're not under the law doesn't mean, okay, well then love any way you want, live any way you want. Love really is a fulfillment of the law. Freedom from the law is what Christians enjoy. Freedom from the law as a binding covenant with its curse for disobedience. But that freedom actually fills our hearts with love for God. And it fills our hearts with love for those whom God loves, right? And that's really where he's coming down to this application. Love those whom God loves. With grace to others because we've been given grace. Love with forgiveness of your neighbor, because you have been forgiven. With patience, because God's shown patience to you. Only the person who really believes that he has been set free from a horrible debt can be so gentle with others. And that's what Christians are. Christians of all people recognize the grace that they've been given and so are able to be and motivated to be gracious with others. Perhaps there's one of you who may be like that man who was forgiven an immeasurable debt in Jesus' story, and yet that man went out only to find the person who owes him a pittance, and now he demands his pound of flesh. May God have mercy on our souls if that is us. And Paul was having to correct that kind of bitterness, biting, jealousy, envy, 
lack of love and grace and patience and forgiveness within the churches of Galatia. And I'm sure that the Lord wants to address that kind of thing in our hearts this morning. I'm sure that the Lord has inspired this text, not only for these ancient people so long ago, but for you and I sitting here this morning to ask ourselves whether we are living according to the gospel that we have received and really putting it into practice with one another. He goes on, he really makes the application most pointedly in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Ezekiel 34, we read earlier, God's flock in that passage was kind of cannibalizing itself. The shepherds were eating the fat ones of the flock. The sheep were causing each other to be a prey, pushing with side and shoulder until they thrust the weak out of the camp and into the clutches of the wolves, treading down the good pasture and drinking of the clear water and leaving everything a mess for the other sheep who came behind. I mean, this is the picture of of utter selfishness that's so much a part of the old flesh. But Paul says now, you've been set free from the condemnation of that flesh, but don't go on and live in the flesh. Don't go on as if you can can just do whatever you want. By love, serve one another. You've been called not to a license, but to a liberty of love. The kind of liberty that sets you free to love God's people. That puts the impetus in your heart to truly love the people of God. To give yourself for each other. Brother, sister, I ask you this morning, are you trampling on God's sheep? Are you pushing and shoving? Are you biting at one another? And you know, sometimes this is something that we um, we don't manifest so much around people who we want to think well of us. But when we're at home behind closed doors in our own houses, sometimes the worst of our flesh really comes out. And I ask you how you are treating young person, young person, how you're treating your sibling. I ask you, man or woman, how you're treating your spouse. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. How are you treating your fellow believer? To the husband who's bullying, His wife, where's the humility at God's gentleness to you? Where's the recognition of the freedom that you have been given? Should God treat you the same as you're treating your spouse? Or to the wife who's issuing biting remarks to your husband? Do you know nothing of the undeserved kindness of God to you? Do you want God to give you what you deserve? To the Christian who's bitter or envious or angry, 
I ask you, where is the forbearance and the forgiveness that you've been given by God? Beware. Beware lest you say in your heart, well, yeah, I have not been loving, but at least all my sin is paid for. Right? I'm free. Not going to be condemned. Those who will not love God's people don't truly know what it is to be loved by God. Those who refuse to show grace have never tasted of grace. And there is an old flesh that is still at war inside every one of us. And I admonish you today in the words of our Lord Jesus through His Apostle, do not let your liberty be an occasion, an opportunity for the flesh. But brothers, through love, serve one another. Let's meditate on what the Lord has for us. Respond to Him with prayer. This is a good time for confession. It's a good time for self-examination. It's a good time for us to be sensitive as to whether the implications of the gospel are being lived out in our lives. I give you this time to meditate and to pray, to confess, to seek the forgiveness of God and the grace of God.